and here we go. This is Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. I'm your host, Brady Huggett, and the guest today, I'm happy to say, is George Church. Um, we worked for a while to get our schedules aligned. George was coming to New York on business. He came into our studio, into the Purple Room, as I like to call it, and we sat down for a conversation uh, I've been looking forward to this for a while. If you follow this industry, you know who George Church is. He's is a professor at MIT and Harvard. He's been at the forefront of genetic sequencing ever since he became a researcher, I would say. He was behind the beginning of the Genome Project in 1984. He um, is a critical thinker about biotechnology, about the world, about the future, and outspoken when he needs to be. Um, what did we talk about? Well, growing up in Florida, which George did, uh, his his dad was a champion water skier, uh, among other things, which is fascinating to talk about. We talked about why George prefers to found biotech companies but not run them, and he has co-founded more than 20 biotech companies at this point. We talked about if there's ever been a better time to start a biotech company than right now. I got his thoughts on that, and much more. Anything else you need to know? I don't think so. So let's pick the conversation up here where George and I are talking about his uh, appearances on the Colbert Report. Here's your First Rounders podcast with George Church. Listen up. Maybe more than twice. Uh, the Report twice and then the, the new show. Uh, oh, his new one. Yeah, once. He likes you then, yeah? He must. I guess. So he, he also wrote a, the blurb for My Time 100. He did? Yeah. Uh, it's so funny. Nice, yeah. So he's into science in his own way. He, he, he must is. be. Yeah, he's, he's uh, among the non-science science supporters, I would say, one of the strongest ones. Yeah. Oh. He likes facts, you know? And you can see, like, his whole, almost his whole shtick now is, like, facts versus, facts. facts versus non-facts, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. Was it fun to be on there? I mean, it must be. Yeah, it was great fun. Yeah, the, the, the second time I was on was the very last show of the nine years of the rapport. Yeah. And... Uh, and it was a, it was basically a sing along with some of his favorite guests, and you know I'm standing next to Willie Nelson. Oh my God! And you know, uh, you know Kissinger and you know, all these people, and it's really it was kind of fun. Yeah. Did you feel like? I mean, did they know who you were? Does, did Kissinger? Kissinger? <laughs> Kissinger probably did. Willie Nelson, I'm assuming, did not know. <laughs> and I mean, a lot of the people I was with knew who I was, yeah. or, but uh, not certainly not all of them. Yeah, yeah not yeah. not Willie. Yeah. Um, well, okay. Anyway, so uh, there's a there's a fair amount about you in yeah. the public domain, including yeah. your genome, I think. But yes. but um, I didn't know where you were born, and I was actually you're born in Florida. Is that right? That's right, McDill Air Force Base. Yeah. yeah. How did that happen? What would your what your parents do? Um, my mother was a a lawyer. Very young. I think she was like 23 or four. When and, you were born. Yeah. Uh-oh. And uh, my father was in the Air Force, um, test test pilot. Oh, he's yeah. a pilot? Yeah. Oh, so that's why you're on the base. Mm-hmm. And did yeah. you, you grew up in Florida? I did until I was 13, getting an absolutely terrible education. <laughs> um, public schools or, or what? Uh, yeah, public and per- Catholic school, just trying all sorts of things. And uh, nobody had science courses. Nobody I knew did any science or engineering. Uh, not not only not my family, but not anybody else. It wasn't until seventh grade they they actually brought in a temporary science teacher um, briefly. But yeah. you you knew you mean you were looking for science. You knew you wanted oh, I, to study yeah, science. I was I was fascinated by science for some bizarre reason. You didn't from the time I was as far back as I can remember, probably eight or nine. Yeah. Meaning meaning what like the natural world or both you know, natural and unnatural. So uh, so I would. I would go back in in my yard, and the, the I was surrounded by water all the time uh-huh. uh, in, in Florida, both canals and lakes and and the, and the bays, and I would just look for creatures, and I, that, and that was fun. And uh, but I would, uh, but when I found something I couldn't explain, like there was once I put a, a, a what turned out to be a dragonfly larvae in a in a jar, uh-huh. and the next day it was gone. I couldn't couldn't see it. Uh, it was this big, scary-looking thing. Um, and I opened up the jar, and there was a dragonfly in there. And I said, oh, my God, how did the dragonfly get into the jar and eat my the thing that I put <laughs> in there? And it, and it took me a while to figure out that it was metamorphosis, that it had changed from one thing into a radically different, some, like this underwater wingless thing. Yeah, this 
in 24 hours, that's the like for me. That's yeah. what's if you had come along day by day and you'd yeah. seen some of the change, yeah. but you didn't yeah. see any of it. Yeah, I don't think I noticed any. I mean, just one day was there, one day wasn't. It wasn't, yeah. And uh, but I, I looked it up. I actually on my own. I, I mostly using pictures because I was uh, mildly dyslexic, and so for most of my early years, in fact, I had reading problems and well into college. I would tend to use pictures uh, uh, when I could, um, which made things more interesting. Uh, but and but then on the artificial side, and, and uh, when I was ten years old, I went to the New York World's Fair, not far from here, and uh, and it was just blew me away. I mean, there was this whole futuristic vision. It, it, looking back on it, it, was all air sats and you know wind, you know mirrors and. Yeah, smoke, but <clears throat> it looked like the future. But it, it it gave me a feeling for the future that, and I got addicted to it instantly. And then I went back to the mud flats of Florida, and I said, "Oh wow, this is definitely <laughs> not the future," you know. And I was never satisfied again, you know. He, uh, all right, you thought, well, I need to go find want, that, yeah. that. So world. I started trying to build computers. I mean, it was pathetic, you know. Trying, they had these amazing computers at the World's Fair where yeah. you could like draw with a pen uh, on a piece on a piece of glass, yeah, and it would like then manufacture a scarf with that pattern on it and I mean that was amazing and they, and they had like a robot that looked so much like Abraham Lincoln you couldn't tell it wasn't a human being and to me that was my standard for computers and I would build this little three bit piece of, you know plastic computer uh, or an analog computer out of savage salvaged rheostats yeah. and, and I just said no that's, that's not doing not, it either, that's not either. <laughs> but so you're you're so you're sort of seeking it out, but you're not you're not finding it in school. There's, as you no. said, there's no science programs at all. No, no. So how did you? I mean, were you going to your parents and saying, "Look, I want no. a different school," or were they? No, I just I would read books and I would like build these lame uh, devices and poke around. And that, what happened eventually is my my mother's third husband uh, happened to come from up north, and he. And we basically they sent me away to school when I was thirteen, to uh, junior, to, to no, high to, school, high know, school, yeah, ninth grade, yeah. Oh, oh, so your your mother, your parents split up. Well, this was while they were to, the, while she was together with the third husband. Uh, he he sent me. No, I mean your biological father. Your parents oh, split yeah, yeah, up. Oh yeah, it was within a few months. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, so yeah. then your mother remarried and then remarried again. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So then that guy. So I got adopted each time. Each time, changing my name, and of course you have to explain that to your classmates. That's fun, right? <laughs> and I wasn't, uh, you know, that well adjusted socially. I mean, I just I was awkward. There was something. You know, I looked normal, uh-huh. which is, and so I would not say much because as soon as I opened my mouth, they would realize there's something wrong with this guy. But meaning what? Like you just go on about science, I, no, or it just, it was just. I think I said things that were kind of out in left field. Yeah. yeah just, uh, okay. They were not like in the moment of conversation. You'd say something that was beyond it, and they go, "What is he talking?" Or about? I was, I was, I was trying to make a sequitur, but it wouldn't be a sequitur <laughs> that they could, could get. Sequit- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so then, um, so so did you know your your actual biological father though? I did. I, in fact, I knew him uh, throughout my life, off and on, um, and uh, he had a big role when I was like thirteen. It seemed like everything happened when I was thirteen. Yeah, and uh, I visited him uh, in um, Texas, where he was in charge of uh, the central uh, component of the hemisphere in San Antonio, and it was like a World's Fair. And it was this big body of water, and he was uh, hosting a water ski show. So he was a, a champion water skier. Oh, he was. He was eventually inducted into the Water Ski Hall of Fame. Wow. Um, he was an athlete. He was, he was interesting. Yeah, he was a multifaceted person. And he, he never really set, settled down. He did many different things, uh, including uh, TV and motion pictures. And um, But anyway, he, he was the sort of guy that... that if I didn't know him, you, you know, a kid would just say, oh, that's the coolest guy in the world. Ah. It's just like, you know, a little kid. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. Say, this guy has it made. He's like uh, he's like Hugh Hefner or something, you know, like, yeah, it's got But you did, I yeah. mean, you did know him, and did you actually still feel that way? I mean, I mean, listen, yeah. those are th- yeah. movies, TV, yeah. Yeah. water skiing champion, yeah. those yeah. things are... Yeah, it's like, so like he would, uh, every year when Miss America was announced, 
it was like one of the various things she had to do as their dues was was to to ride on his shoulders <laughs> or uh, some skier. And since they tended to be tall, they needed a tall skier. He was one of the tallest skiers. And so he would always got this job. Every year that was his every, job? Yeah, oh, job. my God. And he was one of the first color commentators on ABC, Wide World of Sports. And he just had a very interesting color, life. colorful life. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay, so that uh, all right. So we'll probably come back to that somehow. But so then, at thirteen, your yeah. second adopted father said, "We're we're sending you away to school because yeah. of this drive for science, or just." I think it's hard to say. I mean, I think they felt that I was n- not learning much not and, challenged. and wanted to learn. But they sent my brother and me away at more or less the same time. He was my, oh, he was my stepbrother. We we're not genetically related. Yeah, and uh, he went to a military school, and I went to this super. Uh, liberal hippie school uh, um, where the Bushes had all gone. and uh, The Bush family. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. And, uh, and, it, and, it, and it was just immediately, I mean, just love it for sight. I mean, I, it, it had a, this beautiful uh, campus. I mean, it was like better than most colleges with this huge um, landscaping and uh, Quad, that whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it was just, uh, and every possible course, every possible language, every possible sport, there must have been like 40 or 50 sports. Now, you were required to go out for sports. That was the other thing. Normally, I considered it was some some smelly 45-minute class that yeah. you took in the middle of your day yeah, yeah. You know, in public school. But this was, your day was over. Now you spent hours on the, on the, on the playing field. Or what, so doing. what sport did you do? So I don't think I chose. I, mean, I should have chosen basketball or something. But they chose for you? No, no. I chose. They they could choose any of these things. I chose uh, cross country was my first fall, uh, and then in the winter I picked uh, wrestling, and then track in the spring. Those are great yeah. sports. Yeah, they were good. I mean, wrestling is always it has this aura to it. Yeah. No, it was it was okay in the winter. Yeah, it was nice. <laughs> were you good? Any yeah. good at wrestling? Uh, I was on the varsity, but you know I think. It wasn't very good. I was I was in the unlimited weight class, so because your all, height probably. Yeah, all it was very hard for me to get down below it, and there was and there was nobody else to be in unlimited, so I kind of took this, and so almost everybody I wrestled was much heavier than me. And you were and, taller, yeah. And I was, you know, and just uh, it was an interesting experience. Okay, so then so then you're finally getting you challenged, yeah. right? I mean, you're okay now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now yeah. you've got all the science you can handle. Yeah. And did you start to hone in on one area, whether it be math or, or biological sciences? Or? No, I liked them all. I liked everything, math, science, uh, sorry, math, computer science, um, biology, chemistry, and physics, and I did all of them to excess. Uh, and uh, a few other th- you know, I liked uh, photography. Uh, my photography teacher, uh, or my art teacher, took a special interest in, in the photographs that, that, that I produced with a uh, 49 cent plastic camera and uh-huh. some outdated film, which is what they provided all 300 of us yeah. with. Um, um, but yeah, I just, I just, uh, I would do a lot of independence from from day one. I, I found the the I asked for if they had a computer instead of these pathetic things that I was Building, cobbling together, yeah, yeah. and they had a great computer connected to Dartmouth. So I started doing that in ninth grade. With programming. Yeah, 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 and they had they had nobody knew anything about it. It was just this teletype sitting in the basement of the math building with the lights off and no furniture, and I just figured out how to do it just by hacking into it. And then in the greenhouse, I sought that out immediately and started doing uh, uh, putting plant hormones on the carnivorous plants to try to make giant carnivorous <laughs> plants. <laughs> of course, yeah. Of course. Who wouldn't? Yeah, why, right. why wouldn't you do that? Yeah. Right. So. <clears throat> So, oh, oh, is it, so hacking into the Dartmouth computer. I mean, it was the Dartmouth was what we were connected to, yeah, and, yeah. and making giant carnivorous plants. That was, that was my ninth grade experience. And so. this, uh, you mentioned before that you were a little dyslexic. Was that holding you back? Were you getting good grades? I mean, obviously the initiative was there. If you're seeking these things out, but yeah, I think the main, th- not only my reading, but also the, just the, the lack of challenge held me back. So I had to repeat ninth grade, and even repeating ninth grade, I was also, I still had to take the most basic courses, which was particularly painful in, for math. In fact, I, I found myself in a, a little clique of people that all thought they were good mathematicians, but were all set back to baby algebra their first year. And we were, 
irate. <laughs> we were just uh, even though. So you had to retake that that algebra again. Yeah, um, so did they? D- I mean, because you had to take the entire ninth grade again. It didn't matter if you did well. But I also some of the ninth graders came in and they were in like in second or third year math, um, and I was in what we called baby math. Yeah. Along with some really great people who eventually became, you know, uh, top mathematicians and physicists, and we kind of banded together and said, "We're going to catch up," and we did. We 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 all caught up by the senior year. We were taking calculus and uh, uh, along uh. with the other guys. Yeah. We, uh, all right. So that wasn't holding you back. This dyslexia did not hold you back in the well. Grand math scheming. didn't really didn't didn't, didn't really there. need that much yeah. reading. That you know, I consider it all symbolic. Yeah. Um, and yeah, most of the sciences I would figure out from the, I would like look at a lot more pictures than everybody else. Yeah, but, yeah. And I eventually learned to read. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. It was, I mean, it was it was it's not so much I couldn't do it; it was just hard. incredibly slow. Yeah, and hard. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, so then you're sort of blossoming. Sounds like maybe you're thinking computers for a career somehow. Or math. No, actually, at every stage, from the t- even before I went away to school, from the time I was ten, I just wanted to do everything all at once. I wanted—I I guess we would now call it interdisciplinary. Uh, I wanted to actually unify them in some way, and I didn't always know how to do that, but I wanted something that would combine them all. And I didn't even know if that was possible. Um, you just didn't want to give any of them up, kind of. Yeah, I yeah. just—I I just thought they were all interconnected, and I—I I, and I just wanted to do them all. And so the first real chance I got to do that was, um, well, I mean, I would do little things in high school, like I would write uh, programs for ecology. So, for example, I would combine sort of biology and, and math. But in college, I found I was looking for a part-time job, and I would look through the postings, and I found one that just caught my eye. And I don't remember interviewing for a lot of jobs, but I definitely did this one. And it's like, again, love at first sight. It was this uh, brand new, young assistant professor named Sung Ho Kim who was doing uh, X-ray crystallography of the first nucleic acids. So this was like, like Watson and Crick, except this was a folded yeah. nucleic acid. This was, yeah. this was tRNA. And, and when I came in the door, he was standing there in front of this giant thing called a Richards box, which is half silver mirrors with, with Kindrew... Uh, um, wrench adjustable atomic bonds for this gigantic molecule and it was twice his size and he's like like on a <laughs> stool yeah. stool kind of doing this thing and I said um, that's cool already yeah. and, and then I found out that they used computers and biology and chemistry and physics and, uh, and, and Fourier transforms and all this math and I said that's it I found it, and it was. It was the real deal. You this really was, had to understand all these things at once to be good at it. And this was this was Duke, right? You went this to, was Duke, yeah. yeah okay, mm-hmm. so you left Andover. Yeah. Uh, you applied to Duke? I applied early admission. Oh. I, I did not want to go to any more cold. I oh, had you four, had enough I had four of years of cold. A Florida yeah. boy, right, right. Yeah, right. And, uh, and I got in early admission, and uh, beautiful campus, um, wasn't a particularly good way to choose a college, but it worked, it out. worked out. Yeah, you know? and and as soon as I got there, I realized the undergraduate was unchallenging again, and so I just spent <laughs> all my time in the graduate school and in labs. Really? Yeah. You know? How did you? Was that allowed? What about well, you? It wasn't exactly. Duke's allowed. liberal arts, right? I mean, you had to take yeah. your core your core courses, your well, English. I, your... I came up with various ways around it. So, I mean, I did. I didn't hate liberal arts or anything, but I just was in a rush, uh, probably immature rush. Uh, but, you know, I'd, like one of my liberal arts, I took uh, the philosophy of logic, which was actually a logic course, which was, you know, complementary to my computer. Yeah, of stuff. course. Right. And I took a lot of independent study and uh, um, I took graduate courses where I would need to get a signature. And they normally it was that was for seniors. But I wouldn't tell them what, what Asia was. And in fact, I typically wait until they were kind of in a rush at the end of class and just shove this piece of paper and on their just sign it. And, uh, <laughs> and so like, I took a second-year graduate course my freshman year, and he only figured it out. But halfway through the course, he says, what are you doing? You know? Were you, doing, were you able was, to do it? Oh, I was way over my head the first few classes because first few classes, they assigned a bunch of articles 
in nature and PNAS. Yeah. And I'd look at the abstract and would say SDS, which now is an old friend, but back right. then I said, what, what the is that? heck is SDS? Right, right, right. You know? yeah. and, uh, and, but I just, I just, there, you know, my other courses were relatively easy, and so I would just spend all my time on whatever was the hard course. Yeah. So you, you actually passed that class? Oh yeah, oh, no, I got I got good grades. I got a, I, uh, so the professor figured it out and said, "Wait a minute, you're a freshman. Yeah, you're he, not he, even." He didn't give me a break. He, I mean, I had to do the same. No, thing no, I know, but he he allowed you to stay in there. He said, oh, you're, yeah. "Yeah." At the time, it was just kind of too late. You know? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so then this is. So I was a course in in animal virology. That was the. Uh, as of as a eighteen year old, you're taking yeah, that, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And so did you? So then you 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 graduated with an undergraduate degree in. Yeah. And Duke in, in um, chemistry, yeah. or I can't remember what, what the... It was uh, chemistry and zoology, so two degrees oh, yeah. in yeah. two years. Um, in and, two years? Yeah. And So uh, you were you were 20, something like, yeah. roughly, and yeah. you were done with Duke. Yeah, right. And so bec- as a result, I had to apply for a graduate school at the end of my freshman year, beginning of my sophomore year, um, in, order to, in order for it to get... But George, wait, how, how did you take enough classes, like the yeah. core requirements. Yeah. I well, mean, were you scheduling like 10 classes a semester? How no, did you? No, no, I Well, I had a lot of AP credits. Oh, of course. School. Right, yeah. right. Okay. Yeah. So it that's was, how. The APs were fairly new at that point, and I just completely you took them uh, exploited them because uh, I didn't want to take any of the baby classes, which turned out to be really important because some of my classmates actually had AP credits, but they took the baby classes anyway, and they get kind of... Uh, two things happened. One was they were kind of bored, yeah. but the other thing was they were surrounded by cutthroat pre-meds. Duke was a very big pre-med school because it had a medical school on campus, yep. Yep, yep. Not, not a separate. Yeah. And so everybody was inspired by this since all the freshmen were pre-med. I mean, it's almost all of them. They were all liberal arts, but they were also pre-med. And they would just do whatever it took to get good grades. And so they were doing things like they were cheating on their exams. Oh, like 300 man. of them got caught really? in freshman chemistry. Oh, my God. And because they would, the, the TAs knew this was going on, so they were photocopying the exams, and the students would, like, change the answers, right? So anyway, my friends that took the baby classes w- were just, like, burnt out. Uh, and I I skipped all that, and I went to classes where, where only the serious students were taking them. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. So graduate school being, although it is cutthroat, less cutthroat than oh, medical no, no, school. No, no, this was not cutthroat at all. I mean, these were... These were, these were they were just regular, regular, regular scientists, yeah. yeah. Okay, so yeah. you applied to grad school at, at Duke, right? Uh, well, I applied at Duke and uh, Harvard, Tufts, MIT. Oh, uh, you did? Oh, yeah, I didn't know and, that. I, and I got in, and I decided to stay at Duke because I had already started this research project as a sophomore, and I just, just with Sung Ho Kim, and I just thought it was the coolest thing in the world. You're keep crystallography at TRN. You like yeah. Durham? Fine. Durham's all right. Yeah, it was. Didn't uh, matter. Yeah, it was. It was okay. Okay, so, yeah. so you're so then you just roll it right into grad school at, yeah. at Duke. Yeah. And um, I mean, I know this because this is you put this on the internet, right? Yeah. I mean, you you flunked out of grad school somehow. That's right. How so, did how that happen? Well, again, there's always this dynamic about being challenged and not being challenged, and I was very immature at that point. Uh, I mean, I was even more immature than the fact that I was two years too young. Yeah. And I. Uh, um. They made me take courses I already taken, and this, and I said I've already taken this course, and they because you took them as an undergrad. I, the same yeah. school, same professor, same jokes, same I, jokes. Yeah, I mean, I just, you know, I attended a couple of classes. I said this, you know, I have a pretty good memory. I could just like recite what he was saying. And I, I don't need to take this again, and so I didn't. And then as a consequence, I flunked two classes. Um, and usually, even getting a C will put you on probation yeah. or get you kicked out. Yeah. But two was just that was that was not negotiable. These are straight Fs. You, straight you, you didn't. Us. Did you? You didn't take the tests even. You didn't I, go or. Yeah. It's just, I didn't yeah. put any effort in. Yeah. There was yeah. some some key tests that I missed. Yeah. And uh, and Sunko, to his credit, tried to negotiate, but he was an assistant professor, <clears throat> and he just had no. He had and he and he and I gave him no no help. I mean, I didn't. I, mean, I would have, but you know, I'd already messed up, <laughs> and uh, and so I became a technician in his lab. Um, and after about out, just working there, you're not in the school anymore. You're just working yeah, in the lab. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In lab. But I still, you know, I still would go to graduate student functions and things uh, if they caught my fancy. And one that caught my fancy was uh, Wally Gilbert. Yeah, uh, was a, was the student guest that year. 
So, and actually the student invited him was one of the students from our lab. And uh, so I felt in, empowered to go to some of the meetings. And so I went to almost all the meetings. He went to, I was, I was with Wally almost all day without asking anybody's permission particularly. So <laughs> when, he, when he met with the students, I figured, well, one of the students is my friend. Friend, I'll go. Yeah. And when he went to, to, to meet with the crystallographers, I said, I'm a crystallographer. I can go to that. And I just ended up being with him. And, and, and that's because I really thought that I would like to work with him. Right? Yeah. And Sung Ho had already told me, look, you, you're not a very good technician. You really need to reapply for graduate school. So. And the technician aspect being just sort of you're doing more of the rote kind of pipetting no, or whatever. No, no, no. He, he just he let me do what I had been doing, which was fairly independent research. Uh-huh. So, uh, yeah. No, I was like I was acting like a postdoc. Yeah. Uh, whether I don't think it was the same quality as postdoc, but I got five papers. Oh, well, uh, so, all right. You know, it was okay. So yeah. that's what he meant about yeah. not being a good uh, technician. You're actually doing yeah. research. I w- he felt I would research. not be satisfied just following orders. Oh, right? no, I was already not following orders. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. so yeah. then did you just approach him and say, uh, can I come to Harvard? Uh, I, don't th- I don't know if I talked to Wally about it. You know, I mean, I talked to talk science yeah. with him as much as I could. I mean, but he was uh, in a different, you know, different he, was, realm. he was a visitant visiting professor he was already um had made major contributions i just applied like a regular application uh, now i had already been accepted um to harvard and oh at, when you applied at duke yes. and mit yeah yes. okay so, so I, had, I had been accepted i think it was two years earlier and maybe they just looked that up and said well if we accepted we them once yeah. we should accept them again yeah. uh Otherwise, it's it's a, a total mystery how how someone flunked out of a minor school can get into a major yeah, school. Yeah, 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 but, yeah. So that's funny. You, you go to grad school, flunk out of it, and then up up to Harvard from yeah, there. Yeah, get yeah. an upgrade. Yeah. So then you you're going back to Boston. Yep. And um, and I felt comfortable. I mean, I had I had gone there almost every summer anyway. So I had gone the first summer in college. I had gone there to work at a. Medical, Harvard Medical School outpost at Boston City Hospital, which is called the Channing Lab, mm-hmm. which has now moved back onto the main campus. Back then, the Boston City Hospital was a very poor. It was in the, the Roxbury, the yeah. poorest part of Boston. Town. Yeah, and uh, and I would I would I would be going and uh, doing some research on uh, placenta and mycoplasma. And that was my first summer. And then my second summer, I went there. I took. Uh, I was at MIT as a student in quantum physics. And in my spare time, I took a, also took a course on qual- color photography. Uh-huh. Uh, so anyway, so I, I like Boston clearly. I yeah. mean, especially the summertime. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, right. Um, so yeah, that was. Yeah. So you started then doing. I, I don't know. I mean, you were working with Wally. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I uh, was a regular graduate student. I, I felt like. I don't care if these cor- this time. I don't care if the courses are repetitive. I'm gonna be a good boy, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do I'm gonna take the course. I'm gonna do well in them. And uh, I was fortunate. The only really required course was taught by crystallographers. It was like a core biochemistry course. And and I said, oh, I'm gonna do okay if because I think like crystallographer. Yeah. yeah. And and sure enough, about a couple of classes in, they're teaching DNA protein interactions. And I see the slides that the, that the professor is presenting are from my article. And I'm saying, oh, my God, I'm a first-year graduate student. They're showing, you know, I'm, I'm first author of this paper. Does it know? say, like, in the bottom of the screen, does it say church? Or no, no, no. Oh, it's, it's just showing images. Images, images. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, a couple of weeks later, he says, you know, I just realized that you that were the author so of the paper. Yeah. And that was, I, I felt, com- I finally felt comfortable um, Taking the class, and they were talent. You know, they they weren't. Yeah. They weren't things I knew before because yeah. their emphasis was more on molecular biology than biochemistry. And I had, and it, clearly, molecular biology what I wanted to do. Yeah. And Sunco's lab had been like the only molecular biology lab at Duke, or I felt that way at yeah. the time. Yeah, yeah. And here, everybody, you know, uh, was molecular biologist. All right. So this felt like you'd found a home then. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah so you you get your PhD from there. Yep. And then um, you go to UCSF, I think. Right. Right. Uh, so at the end of my PhD, I had been working on mammalian cells on a, on a developed a tech technique called genomic sequencing, um, which was aimed at deter- determining um, 
not just sequencing, but the methylation, epigenetics, that methylation and protein binding sites yeah. at the base pair level on uncloned DNA. So it was, it was kind of a quirky, maybe revolutionary on a bunch of different axes, right? So it was, geno- genomic sequencing was the title of yeah. the p- paper, and, 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 and then we, and then we worked on the, f- you know, an intron encoded enhancer. So introns and enhancers were new. And, and then with this method that eventually scaled up to next-gen sequencing many, many years later. Um, but at the end of that, I was, I was desperate for more and more representative mammalian cells. And so I, I was doing pre-B cells and, and, and uh, all kinds of immune cells. And I wanted something that was even earlier than pre-B cells, and so I, stem cells. And to get stem cells, there was really only one game in town at the time, which w- or in the world, which was Gail Martin at UCSF. Oh, so okay. I, okay. she had sent me some of her stem cells, and I said, well, that would be a good place to do a postdoc and learn all about stem cells. Um, and uh, and she was just getting into molecular biology, so she was most she was in an anatomy department, and it was mostly cell biology. Yeah. And uh, she became very uh, um, enamored of molecular biology, and so I, I could... So that's a good compl- fit. It was, yeah, it yeah. was a good fit. Yeah. So, uh, and uh, and she was good friends with um, uh, Harold Varmus and, and Mike Bishop, um, and 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 they uh, took a liking to me as I was applying to to go there. And so, anyway, so that's had a good start, but then it it didn't uh, last very long. Because, that's like a year or something like that. Yeah, because my girlfriend went to Stanford with she, you. With we went together. Yeah. And. Uh, Later, she became my wife, and we're still together 40 years later. Just to be clear. Yeah. Uh, but at the time, we were, I, I had just, I, I, part of the reason I picked Gail was for that. So, that, so that I could go with, because uh, yeah. she really wanted to go to Stanford, and I, I, had, I would have probably preferred to stay in Boston. I was, I was offered a junior fellowship at uh, Harvard, and, yeah. which is very prestigious, and I, but I went, went over, and then within about four months, she decided that was not what she wanted to do, and she went. Oh, you're. you're your would-be wife said yeah, that. Oh, yeah. oh, and so she she decided she would set up her own institute uh, outside, of, uh, affiliated with Yale, and she she set up her own institute and got her own grants. And you know she was behaving like an assistant professor um, after four months of not liking postdoc. And I'm sitting there saying, "Oh my gosh, we're thousands of miles apart now." And oh, she left. She left. Oh yeah, she went oh, to Connecticut. Oh. She went from Stanford to Connecticut, set up her own lab. You know, oh, that's so. And, you moved all the way out there, sort of, yeah. for her, and then and so she then turned around and left. All, I turned around and left as fast as I could. It took me a little bit more time to wrap things up than, than she did. And since she was behaving like assistant professor, I figured, well, I should apply for assistant professor too, even though it was incredibly premature and I had no papers yeah. from my postdoc. I mean, I had a couple of papers that were published slightly after my, based on my graduate work, but nothing on what I'd done with Gail. Yeah. And I was starting, I was, and in my spare time, I had been starting this little project called the Genome Project and uh, uh, with the Department of Energy in 1984. And, and so, but, but somehow I managed to get a job again. Uh, uh, at at, um, at, at Biogen? Har- no. At Harvard. You worked at Biogen too for a little bit, didn't you? Yeah, so I was, while I was waiting for her to finish her PhD, uh, I worked for six months as uh, one of the first employees to- at, before I went. And that's where I kind of finished up my graduate Publications. I see. Okay, but I wasn't really a Biogen core employee in the sense that it was just like Wally had uh, was he had some labs he had some money yeah. for people who were finishing up. So yeah. anyway, but I it learned a lot about biotech there, and it kind of inspired me to to start companies. I was going to wonder about that. Years yeah. later, yeah. I, I, it just it struck me that it's just like suddenly Wally had all these resources that he had not had. I mean, he was pretty well resourced as professors went, but this went way beyond yeah. that. Yeah. And I said that was that was interesting. So, so for the second time, Harvard kind of saved me, right? So the first time saved me from flunking out of Duke, <laughs> yeah. and the second time it basically saved me from flunking out of my postdoc, yeah, yeah. right. And then years later, it would save me again. And I lost my major source of funding as I'm coming up for tenure, and they nevertheless gave, which is one of the main criteria for tenure. And they if you nevertheless can bring in funding, I, yeah, I nevertheless yeah. got tenure. So I think they did. They took a chance on me three times. And uh, and I still hope that I'm. If you, there's a fourth time, they yeah. might. Well, I hope there's not a fourth time, but, <laughs> but I hope I'm repaying them. In yeah, my, my yeah, for small sure. Way. Right, yeah. right. 
But so you, uh, a couple things I want to talk about. One is you mentioned the genome project, right? Yeah. So this becomes the human genome project, right? Eventually, right? right? Yeah. So how? Wh- Almost I mean, instantly, yeah. Well, yes, so, but it goes so, on for 15 years before we yeah. finally get our right. result. But yeah. how did you? How how were you involved in that? And and um, we know so that's. You know, when, when all the buzz starts generating around whatever, 1999 or whatever, people could see the, the sort of importance of it. But it, was it – could you see the importance of it in 1984 or in 85? I think I, in my own immature way, saw the importance of it in 77. I mean, when I went to Wally's lab, I came with the idea to do sequencing a different way. Yeah. And uh, – which we would now call multiplexing. So, so you'd mix things together. And – I felt, uh, and I also had the experience uh, before I'd gone, when I was at Duke as an undergraduate, of typing in all the nucleic acid sequences in the world, uh, which is not something you would do today, because there's trillions of base pairs, yeah, but, but, yeah. but back then it was something you could do. And and I folded them up uh, using computer programs to, like, predict the three-dimensional structure, and I said, this is great. You know, sequencing is easy, crystallography is hard. Um, let's just sequence everything, or sequence everybody, and and so, so I had this, you know, megalomaniac sort of view that you would you could do, do that. World. You could yeah. you could you could sequence every person and everything, and uh, and so I just started. Well, I started working backwards from what I what I felt was inevitable, and like how would that happen? And I felt multiplexing had to be it because scaling things up. Uh, was going to be expensive, but scaling things down would work. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you mentioned this earlier about you spent that time at Biogen and, yeah. and you realized, okay, whoa, this, you know, and other people have said this, of course, like some of the best work that's being done these days are actually not in the academic labs. They're yeah. in the companies because they have yeah. the resources to do yeah. it. And so you thought, okay, well, this is a way to do it. Now, I think you've been a co-founder in something like 20 or 22 companies at this yeah. point, right? right? What, was, yeah. what, what was the first one? Well, it's a little fuzzy, uh, so, uh, so in addition to Biogen, I worked at BioRad, and in fact, before Biogen, the 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 these this the software that I had done during my rotation, they heard about because they had these like wandering uh, sales reps who would come through and they'd like gather information. Yeah. And so I got I got a, a job uh, as a consultant in my spare time, so that they could write, um, so they could make an automated sequencing device. This is like in '78. And uh, they didn't know what they were over their heads, and I was, of course, way over my head, you know. And, uh, and but we started doing it, and I and, and I would go to Philadelphia to, to to help them do this. And the engineer that I was working with, the the, the junior engineer, was a guy named John West, and uh, and he knew nothing about biology at the time. He was like a laser jock, mm-hmm. and and I would give him lessons in biology, and he would give me le- little lessons in lasers, and we and we built a machine. And at the very last minute, they flinched. It was like it's like they had the world's first automated sequencer, and they just said, "Well, we're going to. There's no market for this. We're going to turn it into a densitometer, which means they they would scan the the intensity of 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 the peaks in a electrophoresis experiment. It was the same. A lot of the software was in common, so it was it was a savvy, semi savvy move. But I was just very disappointed. But the the redeeming feature was John West then went on. To become the lead on the ABI 3700 project, so he was responsible for deploying, uh, uh, making first-generation sequencing actually work, and that's what the genome was sequenced, the human genome was sequenced. Uh-huh. And then he went on to f- to do the the, uh, Illum- the before Illumina was Selexa, he became the product manager for the GA. The, uh, the first Illumina Selexa machine. Yeah, yeah. And so he was responsible for both the first and second gen automation, and so I sort of feel like maybe we <laughs> maybe we had something going there. Um, but anyway, that was that was sort of my first experience. Biogen was my second. the the The, the third was uh, I'm assistant professor now uh, for the third one, and it was um, called uh, originally called collaborative research. So it was already going, but it got re- redone, redo, renamed as Genome Therapeutics. Oh, yeah. In around 19, well, 1990, um, I, uh, 89-90, I joined them so we could do a grant uh, on sequencing genomes. Uh-huh. With, with Through you, yeah. Through, yeah, through my new technology. 
And then, uh, and then in '94, um, we got a new CEO, a new name, and he just without consulting anybody, he said, "We're going to sequence the first genome in the next five months." And it's like, what? And we've never, we had never sequenced a genome of any sort, and you know, we had a lot of infrastructure built up. And, but I, this was his way of like pressure testing us, yeah. and so. Everybody just stopped seeing their family. <laughs> what was the, the genome? What was it? The, the, the one he picked was Helicobacter pylori. Oh, okay. Which were, he knew a bunch of pharmaceutical companies were interested in. Yeah. And the pharmaceutical companies had no clue about genomics whatsoever in any form. Yeah. Or bioinformatics. And so he knew if we could pull this off, they would be totally intimidated by us. And they were. Yeah. Uh, we did pull, we'd pull it off in six months rather than five. But it was close enough. Yeah. And it was the first genome, and it was of a medically significant one. And... We immediately got two companies to sign up for like $75 million, and we could keep selling the same genome over and over because what they wanted was the capability and the, you know, the know-how of sequencing and, and understanding genomes, which we had both. You mean you sold them the genome? We sold them the genome as part of a – they were subscribing to our technology yeah. and to and, our, and our whole infrastructure. And they would get the genome. But they also yeah. wanted the genome because yeah. they wanted to develop drugs yeah, for yeah, yeah. Uh, Helicobacter. So, but you've never run one, no? You, you've always sort of like I've helped never, the technology yes, right. spin it out. That's exactly you've right. been a co-founder, but you've never yep. been like. Did, did you think you ever want to do that? You get I all know, the equity I, you ever. I want always then. felt that uh, I could be more. I could contribute more as an outsider. In fact, that's, that's been kind of. If you had to pick a theme, I, I always try to be the outsider. Yeah. I, and uh, and I also felt that you know I could uh, train graduate students who could go to these companies if they chose, uh, or they could start these companies if they chose, and I felt that would be more effective there. I also, like when I was a kid, I never wanted to specialize. I always wanted to do everything, and I knew that if I was in a company, I would, You'd specialize. I would yeah. be very, very, probably more specialized than even a professor. Well, that makes sense, because yeah. the, the companies that you have been co-founder on, across, you have synthetic bio, you have what you consider industrial biotech companies, sequencing yeah. companies, all, all across yeah. the board. Right. Warp drive Information bio. Information storage. Yeah, yeah. You know. Now you're still doing that, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, um, let me ask you this, because when you look at uh, the way companies are being built now, yeah. and the, the massive amount of money that is available... And tech transfer offices keep getting better. Yeah. And the students are more entrepreneurial. In fact, yes. they think about it. Yeah. And places like MIT or Harvard or UCSF, I mean, they're very good now at doing this. Yeah. Do you think that it's never been an easier time to start a biotech company than now? So I sometimes say that. Um, and and sometimes when I'm with, so I'll be invited to biotech clubs and you know uh, Chinese student associations yeah. and so forth. And they will say, Mm, maybe for you. <laughs> well, that, that's part of it, yeah, right? If you yeah. have the pedigree, the yeah, VCs will yeah. come to your door. Absolutely. Yeah. But if so, you don't... So it, it has never been easier for my postdocs. And as a consequence, in 2018, my postdocs started 13 companies. 13? 13. Almost all of them already successful were only in the beginning of 2019. And, uh, and they were all different, totally different topics. Uh, they weren't stepping on each other's toes at all. They didn't even... And, very, a lot of them very creative, um, and I'm very proud of them. And, and and really, my relationship with them didn't change that much. You know, I kept advising them. You mentored the all same... thirteen of those. Oh, absolutely. Oh my know? God. And uh, and in a way, it was more intimate than when they would go off and become professors. Because when they go off and professors, their colleagues would say, "Oh, now you have to um, distance yourself from all previous advisors because you have to show that you're like yeah a f an independent thinker." Yeah. But the company said, oh, hey, you know, we want you to have a world-class SAB, you know, by all means, use whatever you can use, whatever resources you can use to do well. And so they just, we just kept um, having the mentor-mentee uh, relationship, which I must say is, is fairly equal. I mean, it's not really a, a, a mentor-mentee. It's more like co we're co-mentoring each other. Yeah. But, it, but it, the point is it was very similar. Uh, <clears throat> And, so, and sometimes they would take, they would they would like get up to speed in my lab, and they'd build like a little group within the group of like nine people. This is what Luhan Yang did. Uh, she was a co-inventor of CRISPR and uh -huh. uh, deaminases, and then pig transplant strategy. And she took she left with nine people uh, intact, and so it's totally saved her all the HR hassles and the 
you know, hiring and training and, and then the drama of, you know, somebody doesn't fit because yeah. she only took the people that, that she, she knew. liked yeah. and knew yeah. and trusted. And these were really hard workers. And so, so she was like way ahead of schedule. Um, and, and a lot of them do that. They'll take usually more like one or two people with them. But, yeah. 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 So, so then, yes, in the, in the halls of biotech, right? Cambridge, the yeah. Bay Area. Yeah. It's never been easier, but outside of that, it's it's uh, it might be harder to it's, get attention it's very, outside. Yeah, it's very uh, location dependent, yeah. Yeah. and I would say it's, it's it's even the West Coast, which has all kinds of uh, financial advantages. They're so obsessed with and so good at software and uh, internet. That and those have quick turn times. It's like in six months you could have a good idea and turn it around and sell it for hundreds of millions of dollars. They look at the East Coast and they or they look at biotech and they say, "Oh, that's way too slow, way too risky." Um, And so even they could do it, they don't do it as much. But here in Boston, we have like all of the pharmaceutical companies in a very tight space with some top universities, Harvard and MIT, and a bunch of investors who get it, who totally. Get how long it takes to get through phase one, two, yeah. and three, yeah. and um, and so we're really the biotech hub, and it's a positive feedback loop. You know, the better we get at it, the, the more, more resources draw. we get, the more students come into town yeah. f- with entrepreneur. It's like Hollywood, right? Yeah, it's like, yeah. It's like you know, millions of people want to go to Hollywood, right? Uh, they don't want to particularly want to go to. Uh, Toronto yeah. to start yeah, exactly. their film career. No, exactly. I, I get it. Yeah. Right. So if you want to do it, you're probably yeah. going to go to the Cambridge area. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you said uh, earlier that you saw early on that you thought we should sequence everyone's genome. Yeah. Right. And I mean, obviously, the benefits of that would be huge. Yeah. Do you think we're going to get there? I'm pretty sure we're near a tipping point. Um, uh, I don't know exactly what year that is, but it, there will be a year where it just, like, shifts, and, it, and it's probably pretty soon. It'll be like 1993 with the Internet. It's like before 93. A few people pe- did it. People people didn't get it. Even if they used email, they weren't impressed by it. It was yeah. just like, ugh. Yeah. And, uh, and then suddenly, not only the Internet became commercial, and everybody had to have a website, and it was just amazing. So it went from zero to two million websites, like, overnight. And... Uh, I think we're in the same, and, and what it depended on is it had this, the infrastructure was all there. All the, everybody was on the internet, you know, all the universities and, and a lot of, uh, and it was and it's easy for companies to like plug into the nearest university port. Um, and then you have the same thing with sequencing. The cost has plummeted. We, we ha- have helped bring down the cost by 10 million fold. Yeah. And... And so the costs are down around 300 bucks. The price varies tremendously, you know, from, say, $1,000 with interpretation to some people are charging $9,000 still uh, for whole genome sequence. But the point is the cost is around 300 And so that's the kind of cost that you can easily uh, uh, find um, ways to neutralize that, that cost with, with other benefits and so provide it for free. So it's kind of what happened in Silicon Valley with search engines and yeah. map engines is those cost real money, but not so much that you can't provide it for free to the world. So everybody assumes that maps and searches are free. And I think we're getting to the point where, uh, you know, companies like Nebula Genomics makes genomes free. Uh, and it's working on various business models for how the, the, the rest of the system, the rest of the healthcare system and research system can pay for that. So it is zero dollars. I mean, so that's the, the com- so that's an apt comparison, right? I mean, we give everything to Google so that I can get the, my email and maps for free. Exactly. And and the benefit for them is they get to figure out what I'm doing and where I'm going. If anonymized or not, yeah, they know what this right. human being is doing. And exactly. that would be the same thing. It's very similar. Yeah. Yeah. So, but do you, do you, I mean, I, when I think about it, I think about it just being like when you, when a child is born, you get your birth certificate for that yeah. child and they put the little footprint on there yeah. and then you also get a genome sequence. Yeah, I, I'm not sure when the ideal time, uh, my guess is the ideal time is probably um, when you come of age, you know, like 18 or something like that. So you so, could have, so you're, yeah. You're, yeah. Or maybe even 16, where, where you might get pregnant uh, and, and it might be accidental. And so you really shouldn't even be hanging out with someone that could give you, in addition to a teen pregnancy, an incredible burden, burden yeah. of, of, 
of wanting to humanely treat, deal with someone who is so disadvantaged. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, you could imagine that a large number of Mendelian diseases could be handled by not prenatal, even earlier, preconception, predating, really. Yeah. And, and, it, and, it's, and that there's a proof of concept that works, which is Doria Shoreem, which has almost eliminated Tay-Sachs and a number of other uh, diseases enriched in the Ashkenazi community. But it hasn't been generalized, even though it's a great success and very inexpensive compared to gene therapy or orphan oh, drugs. Yeah, I mean, yeah, those yeah. are million-dollar treatments. This is, you know, hundred-dollar um, genotyping. So uh, I'm hopeful that, that we're near a tipping point where all these things will come together: the zero-dollar genome, better privacy through homomorphic encryption, blockchain. Yeah. You, you're um, you're a great one for transparency. I mean, as yeah. I mentioned, you you yeah. put your uh, your letter where, where Duke kicked you out of the... Yeah. You put yeah. that on the internet? I That's mean, when right. you speak, you give a long list of your affiliations with yeah. uh, industry. Yeah. Uh, and it's all detailed on the, on the internet, uh, on my website. Yeah. Tell, me, tell me why that is important. Transparency? Yeah. You know, it's... Um, I think it came naturally. I, don't, I didn't f- feel like, oh, this is some ethics thing I need to do. It certainly wasn't forced on me. I did it before NIH and Harvard required it yeah. uh, um, I didn't I just I just felt like uh, people are curious um, I I should uh, let them know um, there could be um, you know it just it just seemed very natural to and it's also a way of acknowledging it's a kind of a thank you note it's like I acknowledge all the students that helped uh, the, the colleagues that helped even non-collaborators I try to Acknowledge, and so if somebody's paying in some way, providing resources. I should definitely acknowledge that uh, publicly. So it really had to do, you know, in my thesis, I acknowledged I think 287 people uh, <laughs> explicitly what they did, and uh, it's a whole nother thesis. Yeah, and I just sort of felt like that's what you do. Yeah, you know, you, you'd be thankful for. Yeah. Uh, and then it turned out that it was also very handy for conflicts of interest. And, yeah, and also so that the if a new company wants to work with me, they know all the ones I'm currently working with. Right. And sometimes that would be a showstopper, where a lot of people it's like, oh, well, you're you're working with this company, we can't work with you. But in my case, for some reason or other, over the years, I, they 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 didn't see anything bad happen, and they felt like, well, this guy can handle well, m- multiple companies in the same space. Well, maybe the parent, maybe the transparency is why they felt that way. Maybe you if, if you were if you didn't mention a company, and they found out, they'd be like, well, why? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, yeah, you blindsided us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I've, I've uh, had the pleasure of being involved in all, essentially all of the next-gen sequencing companies, both nanopore and fluorescent, uh, uh, single-molecule and multi-molecule. I've been involved in almost all of the synthesis companies, including the synthesis for data encoding, 10 of those, uh, and most of the editing uh, as well, uh, and gene, en- gene engineering synthetic biology. And so... They may consider themselves competitors, and I, I never tell them what the other ones are doing. Yeah. If I feel there's some reason they should know about it, uh, I don't tell them. I just say, hey, you should have a conversation. Right, just, right, right. I won't even tell them about what. Just have a conversation. It's up to you. Have a conversation. Yeah. And I ask both of them if, they're, if they want to do that. Um, and sometimes that results in marriages. So I'm like, uh, I'm like a matchmaker. So it's like, <laughs> like uh, BGI and CGI. I mean, that marriage was, that seemed like that was destined because the names are almost the same, right? Yeah. Adjacent alphabetically. Um, this is, you're talking about um, but, PGI and complete genomics? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so that was Did you great. put that together? Yeah. Well, I don't know if I had put it together. Did you I was, say I you was should in have both. I was in both companies. Oh, I didn't and, know that. Yeah. Uh, and it seemed obvious uh, that they would be, and Illumina hated it. I'm <laughs> I mean, sure, yeah. And I was, but I was also working with Illumina, and uh, and and I would have loved it if if Illumina had had purchased uh, CGI, CGI, but yeah. they, they had an opportunity, but they uh, they, they changed changed their mind too late uh, at that time. By that time, uh, BGI was ongoing, and they and they like tried to convince Congress that this was not in the. National I didn't know this. Oh, you know, this was they they made a national security argument. Oh, I somehow that, missed this. I don't you know. know so I missed that, this. That, that, that U.S. DNA was going to be going into China, and you could look it up and. Uh, and like Obama's DNA would be out there, and uh, you know, interesting. You I know. did. I, I can't believe yeah. I missed that. No, I, yeah. I missed that. And uh, I think it was Obama. Anyway, whoever was president at the time. 
Well, this this sort of goes along with that transparency question, but you, you said some things about SynBio, and yeah. I think I'm, I'm, I might get these quotes wrong, but one of them is in the New York Times, and you said something like, anybody who's doing synthetic bio without a license should be should be suspect, number one. Right. And then I think it was in Chemical and Engineering News, you said something like, anybody who even comes through my lab yeah. needs to be under surveillance from that right. point on, right? right? right. And That's because right. if you're going to do synthetic biology, yeah. you've given up some civil liberties. Right. And exactly. I just want to ask about, I mean, I'm not even saying that those are the wrong things to say, but yeah. no one else is really saying them, yeah. and I'm, I'm interested in why. Yeah. Well, so I, I um, was part of the DIY bio movement from the very beginning, and I had a lot of friends. Uh, I was present the first day that BioCurious opened up in San Francisco, and uh, GenSpace in New York, and uh, a couple in Boston. And I and I knew that they weren't going to like me saying that, yeah. and I knew that even people in my lab weren't necessarily, but I, I felt that it, it, it wasn't as exotic as it sounded, because, for example, when you start driving a car, you give up some of your liberties. You say, I am willing to be under surveillance, because it isn't sufficient that I pass my driving exam and I promise to be a good person, um, because... They need you need to have need to watch that you're not drunk that you're not underage not that you're not speeding and so those at least those three things have to be under surveillance so you're not weaving in and out yeah. of traffic yeah. and uh, so that's what surveillance is about and that's what licensing is about and uh, and I think the stakes are even higher for synthetic biology because you know if I'm driving a car the worst thing I do is cause a pile up which yeah. is pretty bad yeah um, but. If I release smallpox, it's way worse. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So this, I think, it's, it's I think this existential sur- risk for humanity. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. You don't get much higher than that. And so I feel like nobody is forcing us to be synthetic biologists. So I am willing to, and you know, they should be looking for irregularities. You know, that the FBI should does occasionally look for people in high positions that suddenly are compromised. They've they've developed a substance abuse yeah. or something that they could be extorted uh, and then and that's critical yeah yeah okay they've lost their job or they've suddenly got a a huge bank account uh, that they didn't have before on a low-paying job you know these are all red flags that combined with know-how and synthetic biology should be yeah okay so i think there's two things that i want to ask you one one is you're, you're a vegan no i am okay and so i think it seems to me, you know, that's that's sort of a social point you're making, I, I would say. Um, you've made other social points, like the one you just did. Sometimes the benefits yeah. far, or, or the dangers far outweigh the benefits of civil liberties. And I think my question is, when you sort of look around, do you feel like like the world in general is in a precarious place? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that we need to worry, but worry isn't to, like, cause pointless stress uh, and to just have endless discussion it's to be creative and um, quickly uh, anticipate and anticipate as far out as we can any kind of uh, personal or global catastrophe and avoid them Um, and so uh, I don't think the world is necessarily precarious in the sense that most things that we're messing up if we we will. We will may, might wait a long time before we, but eventually it'll become painful enough. We will take action. There are a few things where, uh, where we don't have time to react. In other words, it's not like a slow built. It's not like the frog you know, the and it's slowly in a getting boiled. Pot of water, yeah. uh, it's more like if uh, if an asteroid hits, we're done. Um, we're done. So, yeah. so we should have already established an outpost on another planet. That yeah. requires very thoughtful um, planning that could take. A really long time, a lot of resources, yeah, yeah. Um, or some epidemic uh, that is either natural or uh, man-made. That takes time to be prepared for that sort of thing. You can't just like do what they do in Hollywood, uh, flip together some vaccine <laughs> at the take, last minute, and everything's yeah, fine. Yeah. But so, but the the outpost idea, the carrying capacity of the planet is only so much, and yeah. eventually the human population is going to override it. So right. regardless of whether so an asteroid hits or not, that's a second reason. Yeah, yeah, for an outpost you're talking about. Yeah, I yeah. mean we need to have a backup. Um, and I, you know, I think that if you do the f- physics calculations, it's a little, it's a little oversimplified, but the cost of moving our potential energy from the surface to a to uh, outside of orbit and beyond 
isn't as much as it currently costs. And what it currently costs is already coming down dramatically from what we were paying for the, in the space shuttle era. Um, but anyway, we, we, it, it, it could be affordable to send massive numbers of people off the planet uh, if, if there is a suitably biologically and socially accessible Spittable place. place right. um, but we need, we need to plan that. And, and what we need to do is we become infatuated with the physics of space and completely neglected the biology, behavior, psychology of space. And what we need to do is build colonies on Earth um, soon uh, so to see whether we can or, or what we need to adjust to make that work. And so the consequences of s- making a small uh, mistake off Earth are dramatic. Yeah. They, they could set back, we could just lose interest in yeah. it uh, for, yeah. for decades, and that, and, that, and that may actually be irreversible. So in other words, if we lose lose interest at a time where we have the resources, um, Elon has made a similar argument, but his is based on the physics, and yeah. I'm focusing on these other things. Um, we lose that uh, that momentum. We could we we might look, we might run into some problem on Earth that just lo- where we lose the resources. So colonies on on Earth are much less risky. So you you know if you get sick, you open the you know get so sick you can't fix it inside the colony. You go to the nearest hospital, right? Uh, or if you, you know if the oxygen gets the wrong ratio, you just open up the doors yeah, yeah. and you're fine. And uh, well, on Mars, it's basically a vacuum out there. Uh, but I, I mean, I was under the idea that we haven't found that planet yet. Whatever, whatever one we'd want to do an outpost on, we don't know what it is. I mean, it's not in it's not in our solar system, is it? Oh, there are plenty of great places in our solar system. Yeah, well, I, I mean, the Moon, Mars, Venus. Well, no, no. Uh, I mean, those those and, we'd have to yeah. we'd ha- you'd have to literally build. Like a world thing. that you could never go outside of, like, Mar- like well, so Mars. Should, we should be building colonies on Earth that are hermetically sealed. I see, I see, that, okay. Uh, where you can show you can do it. I mean, there, there was an attempt with Biosphere 2, yeah. uh, but it was way too grand a scale. I mean, we need to build little ones so we can do lots of different experiments. Um, uh, the same this is the story of evolution. You, yeah. can't, you can't build one. That's why I was so disappointed with the Genome Project. We're going to sequence one genome. You know, we we need to get good at yeah. it, right? You need yeah. to have a lot of experiments on how to how to do it, and uh, they need to be sealed uh, tight, and it has to be total recycling. Um, yeah, uh, ideally, and uh, and it has to be under conditions where you could have a vacuum outside. In fact, you could even have a, a, a colony with within us. Uh, in a vacuum. Sphere, in a vacuum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could have it in a vacuum. Okay. I, I, yeah, I was, I was misunderstanding yeah. that. But, I mean, there's some moons that have more water than, than Earth. Yeah. Uh, so it's possible. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah. Uh, so I think that the last thing, it, the, the genome has basically identified uh, your life, sort of. I mean, it's like this has been your life's work, sort of, working, considering the genome in, in some ways, right? Yeah. Yeah. When you and I'm bringing this back to your mother and father. Your mother's a lawyer. Your father was a pilot and a general. Second one was a lawyer. Third one was a doctor. Yeah. 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 When you look at your biological parents, do you look at them and go? I mean, when I look at my parents, I can see the things that my mother did well that are in me, and the things yeah. that my father did well. Yeah. Do you see that in your own parents? Um. Well, my my fathers were, were you know like many fathers they were they weren't. Always there. I mean, yeah. They were working. Uh, my mother was also a working mother, but she was, she seemed to be there more. Um, uh, uh, you know, I felt pretty close to them, but I was only there until I was thirteen. Yeah. And uh, and the you know the homes we kept moving and getting new relationships. Um, yeah, I think my mother was probably the one that inspired me the most. She was the co- most constant source throughout that time and she I think she was math phobic uh, that's what she said and uh, I think that she vicariously lived you know that that her son could do something she couldn't do and uh, and she encouraged me and I I felt I felt special in that sense I think a lot of growing up uh, or excelling is feeling you're special in some way even if it's an illusion it's very helpful to to if, if you've if you feel like, if you feel comfortable, um, you, you, you sometimes don't try as hard, or you, or you don't think out of the box as much. And so I was very uncomfortable for a whole bunch of reasons, uh, and and or, or special in some cases, for, yeah, and for other reasons. So, so she helped there. Um, you know, we had f- family friends. You know, like we had an electrician. I mean, literally, he would 
changed the AC plugs, and and he helped me with whenever I would do anything with electronics. Yeah, you know? I mean, like building he, the he first did, computer. Like yeah, a, well, yeah, well, my second computer. Yeah, it was it was a it was an analog computer. I I don't think he understood digital oh, electronics. He, yeah. he didn't really understand electronics, but he did understand electricity, uh-huh. you know, Ohm's laws and things yeah, like that. Yeah. Uh, so um, I benefited from him. He was the closest I had to to a scientist engineer. Yeah. You know? But so, like when you when you were struggling in ninth grade, they held you back or whatever. Did were those moments you think, well, maybe I'm not actually that bright? Uh, hmm. Or could you see no, that? No, I I didn't feel that I was. No, I felt that I that I had been in the wrong place. Uh, I, f- I I felt like you know even all these privileged kids that had been at great schools, say in New York, yeah, or, yeah, or they had been in pre prep schools and stuff. I just sort of felt like they were kind of a lot of them were lazy. Uh, it was it, this is the '60s, so a lot of them were into drugs, and you know, I just sort of felt like I can lap these guys. You know, like uh, almost like give me the chance and yeah, I can give do me it. Give me the chance and I'll do it. Yeah. Yeah. And they were, and I, I felt I had the chance, so I, I, I felt like it was mine to lose. I had, I had to pay back. Uh, so I've been paying back ever since. <laughs> yeah, as <laughs> best I can. Thank you. That was a good interview. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. All right. There it is. Your first rounders podcast with George Church. Thank you, George Church, for coming into our studio. Very much appreciate the talk. I enjoy every one of these I've ever done, but I absolutely enjoyed that talk. Uh, I've been looking forward to it. It did not disappoint as far as I'm concerned. And yeah, I could just talk to him about the future forever, (laughs) forever. Um, what else? Thank you, Midwest Quiet, for use of your music in this podcast. I will put up more information in our bioengineering community uh, page about this interview, about George Church. I'll throw some links up there. Anything else that I should tell you? I don't think so. We will let the Midwest Quiet take you out. Thank you, and goodbye.